This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal wearing a disturbingly yellow and black scarf. How are you? Very good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having a great weekend. I thought you might just be hungover or something. No, 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 no. Go Tigers. Oh, there. There we go. Uh, Lyndon, you're a bit more sensible. Yes, no, no red and black. Red, and, I've got no red and black, no bombers, and I've got no yellow and black either. Just happy to be here to talk about science. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. We've got Liv doing our Twitter feed. She's wearing uh, something weird too. I don't know what's going on in this studio. I'm surrounded by Tiger supporters. It's um, they've crawled out of the muck, folk. Yeah, for once in 37 years. Anyway, you oh, good on them. It's exciting. Everyone loves an underdog. Speaking <laughs> an under tiger. <laughs> Speaking of crawling out of the muck, yeah, yes, I've got some news for yeah, you. Yeah, let's do it about um, one of Australia's giant megafauna. Do you have a favourite um, giant megafauna? You know those creatures that lived in Australia, kind of like thirty, fifty thousand years ago. I'll put you this way: if there is a seven foot koala, that's my favourite. <laughs> Mine's <laughs> the wombat, the big, the big wombat. Oh, that was, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I love that guy. That's that's what I'm going to talk about today: <gasps> the diprotodon. But you know, there were there was like this big marsupial lion. There was this enormous venomous lizard. Like, you know, we had this huge giant red kangaroo. Like, Australia had mm. these amazing megafauna that lived, um, you know, 30 to 50,000 years ago. Um, but what's really difficult is, you know, we can work out a lot about them from all the fossil records, um, but it's hard to work out how they behaved. Like, you know, they're long extinct. How do you work out how these ancient creatures, you mm. know, you know, behaved and responded to their environment? Because um, you can get clues from fossils about where they died in terms of what they did while they're alive. But but actually, there's been some work that's been done at the University of Queensland led by Dr. Gilbert Price, which is actually looking at the diprotodon, the, the giant kind of rhinoceros-sized uh, wombat, um, to try and work out... Um, what it ate, but not just what it ate, but where it ate. Because, you know, it, it turns out not only you are what you eat, but you are where you ate. And whether or not these um, diprotodons actually um, underwent migration to actually go and find different food sources. And mm. the way they've worked it out is by looking at their um, incisors, um, because just like the tusks of an elephant continue to grow throughout its life, the, um, the teeth of the diprotodon continue to grow throughout its life, which means that they've got some um, really interesting geochemistry in the fossilised teeth that actually reflects the um, compositions of the soil of you know based on the plants that they ate. Mm. And so, like you can drill an ice core to kind of or look at tree rings to work out kind of the age and kind of um, conditions of, of of what was happening you know at different times in an ice core. You can also do the same with teeth. So they they've got these fossilized diprotodon um, teeth, and they're drilling through the samples to study the geochemistry, and they can find these patterns that suggest that the diprotodons were migrating sort of 200 kilometres that way to eat and then at different times of the year they'd migrate back again. And this kind of pattern of migration is actually not something seen in modern-day marsupials. So it's actually fascinating. And you can kind of then start to um, backtrack that and sort of imagine like, well, if they behave like other migratory herds, you can kind of imagine this um, Ice Age Serengeti in Australia (laughs) with all these giant diprotodons migrating grading in herds from one side of the kind of plane to the other to in seek and 
is seeking out new um, food sources. Where did they find these fossils, Dr. Crystal? Oh, so these are all found um, up in the Darling Downs. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of in an area in Queensland that's quite rich for these kinds of um, fossil records. Um, so yeah, so you can kind of imagine that there was this um, these uh, enormous rhinoceros-sized wombats migrating across uh, the Australian uh, landscape. I think I'd love about that is. If you've ever ever had a scenario where you've seen the damage to a car that's hit a wombat, you realise these are solid little buggers. <laughs> I'm talking about the small ones. Yeah. So you can imagine a three-ton a wombat. Three-ton wombat. Yeah. You kind of plough through a house with one of those. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a wall breaker. Yeah, and and it's really actually hard to work out what the impact on um, the environment mm. or, or what the environment or what the ecosystem how it would have had to function to support large numbers of these enormous beasts. But yeah, yeah it's fascinating. Because normally, you know, many herding animals that do, you know, wander through the forest and so forth, they don't take the forest down with them. Mm. But a three-ton wombat would, you know, eucalypt trees really hunt that strong the majority of them. You know, you'd think they'd just walk over them like toothpicks. I mean, they're yeah, heavy-duty animals. But you imagine elephants, you know, and other kind of large animals, you know, they, they, they exist within their ecosystems. So, mm. yeah. Anyway, I just thought it was a fantastic story that gives insight into the behaviour of, of, of animals that are now completely extinct. We can actually start to actually get some insights into how they live their lives. And they're plant eaters. Plant eaters. That's and quite high because, resolution yeah. too. 200 kilometres sort of. Yeah. Like, yeah. Here to Shep and back. Like that's, that's quite high <laughs> resolution information to have from well, so it, long Well, it's ago. all about the geochemistry of the teeth and being able to look at the minerals um, that are in the teeth as they were growing and as mm. they were growing out and working out how far they would migrate into which areas. So, yeah. Cool stuff. It's Very cool. Stuff. Yeah. Well, I've got some news. I found some really exciting news I read this week in Nature Communications. It's not so much about the past, but actually about the future. Um, And it is looking at the possibility of harnessing evaporation for renewable energy. So these researchers from Columbia oh, yes, University in the this. US, yeah, have, they've spent a few years, they've been working on this mini kind of evaporation engine that you can put on the surface of a lake uh, and it's kind of, it's powered by these little bacterial spores that expand and contract when they have water in them, right? Right. And so this, I'm still trying to get my head around it. I got really excited about it and the details confused me a little bit. But as I understand it, you get this little layer of uh, this engine on top of the water surface and it's got uh, shutters above and below this line of spores that expand or contract when they um, soak up water. And the expansion and contraction uh, mm. is then converted into electricity that can then be used to create yeah, create energy. These researchers have uh, estimated that the power produced by these engines, if you used all the lakes in the US except for the Great Lakes, not sure why those ones are excused, but all the other lakes that are greater than 0.1 kilometres squared, uh, would produce enough power for 70% of the US. That's extraordinary. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't yeah. it? I think there's still it's still a fair way off, hmm. but it is something that is happening already. Half of the sun's energy is used to have... Uh, to evaporate yep. water, and uh, this is just kind of just putting a, a little layer over it, so the the water evaporates from the lake surface, deals with these spores, and then is evaporated again at a lower potential um, chemical potential into the the atmosphere. So I, I, I love any form of energy conversion where it's done off things that we kind of don't know that are there. 
You know, I mm. love that wind, wind for me was the one where it feels it's just all around us all the time. You know, yeah. you can convert it. And, and it doesn't, you know, that idea that it has to be, you know, gale force to work. It's like, no, you know, my, my family and I were driving up to Ballarat the other, um, on Saturday and there was this really tall, you know, sort of 30 foot pole in the middle of some farm with this really lightweight turbine on it. This thing, it wasn't windy and this thing was flying around. It was mm. incredible. And, you know, we were just, Saying, wow, that's got to be generating with the power. It's yeah. quite, quite good. But these ones, like, you just, it's, it's always there, right? The evaporation is always there. Exactly. Yeah. Might as well take advantage of it. Yeah. What's not quite clear to me is how this kind of technology might affect the water cycle. Mm. <clears throat> because I think that they, one of the things they said in the paper was that, uh, it might actually be good for areas that are drought prone. So if we use this, cause the other thing about this technology is that it's a bit more stable, a bit more stable than your wind or your solar because mm. evaporation mm. kind of happens all the time. And you can regulate when the different shutters of the engine are open and closed. So you can kind of regulate how much water is evaporated or not, which could actually help keep water in where the water needs to be. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. I do wonder whether meteorologically that might have an impact on, on weather patterns. And I couldn't find any information about that in the paper, so maybe that's a topic. Yeah. And also how, research. how you do scale that up because, you know, you probably couldn't coat all of the surfaces of the lakes of the United States. No, with these, no probably not. have any lakes. Yeah. But, but yeah, but, um, I think, um, like you say, being able to harness something that's already happening and happening all around us at scale. Mm. Exactly. And we found that. I mean, with wind farms, we've found location is, is key. Mm. I read a, a report once which was a theoretical model of, you know, a, a sort of 100 by 100 wind farm and there was supposedly a two-degree temperature drop at the surface as a result of that sitting, you know, oh, really? location. But it was like, they, you know, the outcome of the, the study was, well, just put it where a two-degree Temperature change is not going to cause problems, you <laughs> yeah. know, and there's a lot of locations where you could do that. Yeah. So it's, I think it's really about, you know, sensible location and planning mm. and making sure these things work, but very, very nice. Speaking of super cool future things, Ooh. you know, Elon Musk was in Adelaide oh, over the last Elon week. Musk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good old Elon. Um, you know, as I call him, you know, the Thunderbird, because he is <laughs> landing rockets. I mean, that's just cool stuff. But, you know, he's, his big plans, of course, are around um, getting humans to Mars. And it's interesting because at the moment, you know, as a result of the last few administrations in the US, the budget for NASA has been so devastated over, over recent decades that you know, plans for Mars are, you know, well into the 2030s now for, for NASA, whereas... Um, Good old Muskie believes that uh, he can get there by 2022, which is really not far away, you know, four right. years. So the plan is basically within five years to send cargo ships to start setting up the things needed to support humans on Mars. And um, they've got this planned transport system, which is it's, the code name is the BFR. It's the big something rocket. I'll let you <laughs> guess what the, the middle word is. Friend, friendly? <laughs> friendly rocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. French? Um, big firing rocket. Uh, anyway, but the, the idea is basically that they would be able to construct some of these um, vessels needed uh, within the next sort of six to nine months that they'll be initiated. And then they'd be there on the Red Planet by 2022. And, you know, shortly after that sort of, um, you know, start to do some really interesting things. So this is this is, you know, really pushing it. And I think he showed images of his this new rocket, the designs and stuff, it looks pretty cool. And it really is taking what is, you know, 
no, perhaps a bit of a conservative approach by by NASA and and really pushing that and, and remembering that you know his his SpaceX company is the only one that's managed to land rockets successfully after putting things into orbit, you know, delivering stuff to the International Space Station and then landing that rocket on a pad in the middle of the ocean, which is just like you know mm. amazing, amazing stuff, really impressive, <clears throat> and because. The Martian atmosphere is so thin and you you really, you know, parachutes on Mars are not great for you. So if you remember when they landed the Curiosity rover, they had this incredibly complicated landing sequence and part of it at the end was retro rockets that actually fired to slow the object down before it landed on, on the actual Martian soil. And you'd have to be able to do that with people in a rocket. So you can't just pop a parachute and hope for the best because the Martian atmosphere is actually too thin. Because Mars doesn't have a magnetic field, the sun has been stripping the atmosphere off over over billions of years. Every fact that you and lay down is just more terrifying than that? the previous fact. Yeah. And so space terrifies Mars, me. That Mars is so scary. Is a terrifying prospect. I mean, you know, it is really a terrifying prospect. It's easier, much easier to go to the moon, even though you know you can't breathe on the moon, you can't breathe on Mars either, and you can't slow down on Mars, you can't do anything. The moon at least has a one sixth of the Earth's gravity, so it's mm. a bit easier to land on. Mars is is you know point eight or something of the Earth's gravity, so it's still a bit of a bastard to land on, but. You don't have an atmosphere to slow you down, so or very minimal atmosphere. So yeah, tough stuff. So I mean, and one of the biggest announcements of the week was that Australia would get it, we were going to get our own space agency. Yes, which is pretty exciting. And uh, there was a, there's a company I think t- selling t-shirts. Some great. Uh, I put this up on their website, and people have made some amazing contributions. Um, which is called I think I think they're they're claiming, which is just to sell t-shirts, but they're claiming it's going to be called Australian Research and Space Exploration. Exploration. Which a- is a great acronym. Yeah. And so that I, I challenged our listeners to, you know, put up what they thought the divisions of that would be and they have. <laughs> and some amazing acronyms that come after that one have been put up. Have a look on the Facebook site, mm. folks. It is pretty funny. Um, so congrats to those people who came up with those great names for divisions. And I... Yeah, I'd love to read out some of my favourites, but they're a bit naughty. So. <laughs> Good. Anyway, yes, yeah, so um, Australia getting a space agency is a huge thing because we pay an enormous amount of money to other countries to do this stuff for us at the moment. So we're already spending the money that we would otherwise redirect to Australian industries to, to do cool stuff. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Hopefully on the phone we have Dr Alex Held. Alex, can you hear me? Yes, I'm here. Now, Alex, you're from CSIRO. Just give us a bit of a background on yourself. Which division and um, what are you working on? Yes, I'm, uh, I'm here in CSIRO at the Land and Water Division. And I'm a principal research scientist uh, looking at uh, an, uh, um, a science area called Earth Observation. Hmm. Now, I understand that CSIRO has just secured access to essentially one of the most sophisticated satellites that's um, ever gone up. Uh, and and we get to use it. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that's uh, it's really cool. I mean, it's for the first time, for the first time we can point the satellite uh, and look at areas that we're interested in. Uh, it's going to be launched. We hope that at the end of this, this year or earlier next year. Um, and it's it's it carries on board a, a, a radar imager, which basically allows us to go and see things through clouds or haze, especially useful in the tropics. Now, now, in terms of radar, what what exactly do you do with that? I mean, we all have this this image, of, I suppose, of radar as being something that sees physical objects and structures. Can you do more than that, or is that the main goal? 
Yeah, basically that's how it works. I, it was, uh, as you imagine, invented a uh, long time ago to detect ships and airplanes, mm. uh, especially for military purposes. But these days we use that uh, in an imaging mode. So basically as it as a satellite comes over uh, 600 kilometers away, it scans, it scans uh, the Earth and by detecting the presence and the size of objects, we can create an image uh, that basically gives us the structure of vegetation or forest or infrastructure, buildings, bridges, and so forth uh, as it scans over the landscape. Mm. Is this a satellite that's dedicated just to our use or is it shared between a number of countries? Yeah, we, o- we, we only have about 10% of its allocated time. So other countries uh, who are partners in this, including the UK government and the uh, uh, other governments potentially that would join us uh, could could buy into this and, and use it for whatever they want as well. Mm. And give us a bit of a description of the satellite, because I suppose the idea of these ginormous, you know, car size objects that people were putting up in the 70s and 80s, it's not really what we're doing anymore, is it? They're, they're so much smaller, you know, not quite the size of a, a smartphone, but they're certainly getting down in terms of size compared to what, what people are probably used to. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the the, the big ones that you the ones launched about ten twenty years ago would have been the size of a minibus. Sometimes, mm. uh, massive rocket you needed to launch these. Um, these days, we have the smallest ones. They're called cubesats. They're small, like a half half a lo- loaf of bread, which uh, which can be launched. Like I mean, hundreds of them at the same time through the space station or through some rockets. Um, this one, Novasar, the one we're, we're using, is about the size of, uh, uh, let's say, a, two times the size of a normal refrigerator. So it's it's still a bit bigger because it needs a, a bit more power and and it needs reasonably large solar panels to to power the the radar radar system because that produces microwaves. It not just picks up what gets reflected off of the earth. So um, it needs a bit bit bigger size than the small cubesats. But uh, a number of people and university groups around the country and worldwide are launching a bunch of small cubesats to learn how to make and miniaturize things even more. Hi, Alex. It's Dr. Crystal here. I was just wondering, you said that the satellite can be used to look at all kinds of things like forests and buildings and infrastructure. What are the applications that you're most looking forward to um, in terms of what you're going to use this new satellite for? We are uh, really interested in looking at um, how quickly can we uh, collect imagery, let's say, uh, before and after a massive disaster like a big cyclone would have hit uh, um, plantations in, in, in uh, let's say, northern Queensland and places like that. Because we can, we can not only program the satellite to take the image, we can also downlink the data as soon as it takes the image, downlink it into an Australian receiving station. So one of the applications we really want to try is how quickly can we produce an image and send it to emergency agencies that can uh, respond very quickly to these disasters. Um, in our application, we're trying to develop also with our researcher colleagues is to map the amount of standing biomass across the country and that's very useful for a variety of applications including carbon accounting and uh, looking at uh, how much um, food there is for for beef production and agriculture and things like that so really a lot of really interesting applications we're going to work on in the next few years 
That's great, Alex. It's Dr. Linden here. You mentioned that you uh, want to work with emergency services. Uh, are you partnering with any other industry or, or organisations or government to work with this new information? At this at this stage, uh, we, we're just beginning those conversations. Uh, I think it would be really interesting to work with, uh, uh, let's say, uh, yeah, local emergency agencies. Uh, as well as maybe the insurance industry. I think that's potentially an area where we might might want to expand our collaborations because we can really do these things and assess the damage very quickly that sometimes insurance companies would want to use as well as part of their assessment. Alex, uh, are you going to get to see the launch? Um, I'd love to, but because we don't know exactly when, Exactly, it will happen. Uh, we don't quite know. It, I might. It, it might happen in the next few months, but uh, I just have to see. Yeah, that'd be cool. Now, now um, I have to ask you why we got got you on the phone. Why? Um while this is all happening, of course, there's the announcement this week that Australia will have its own space agency. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? That must be a, a particular thrill for people like yourself who are engaged in this industry in such a major way. We are, yeah, we're all very excited in some respects because uh, this is something we always feel we need in Australia, have a, have a central point of contact for fellow space agencies we work with um, and who can also help stimulate industry and uh, create more jobs locally. But the most exciting, I think, to me is to make sure that kids in Australia also get excited uh, about having our own space agency and in the future um, perhaps we uh, take part in that industry uh, and stay in Australia uh, and do that those jobs. So I, that, that's really exciting for me. Yeah, it's great news. Alex, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with the new Novastar satellite. And I hope uh, some of the data is, is as effective as it sounds like it will be, especially given we have such a large country to deal with. Um, it's certainly the way to do it. Um, good luck. And we will um, we'll maybe chat to you guys again once uh, it's up and running. Thanks. Thanks so much. Dr. Alex Held there from the CSIRO talking about the new sophisticated satellite they've got, which sounds pretty cool. Space Agency, I want us to launch a Saturn V rocket from Australia. That's what I'd like to see, even if it doesn't go anywhere, just to see the launch. I'm just amazed at how (laughs) um, satellites like this allow us to answer questions for which we have no idea. Like, how many trees are there in Australia? We don't know. (laughs) And and I think that Earth observation stuff, like, you know, people think about space for going outwards, but really it can tell us so much about, Mm. you know, in terms of looking inwards. And And being able to answer a question so quickly as well. I mean, the next generation are growing up with Google Earth on their phones where they can see everything. What we don't quite have yet is that temporal resolution. So getting these quick pictures, oh, it's incredible. The bit I like to always get into people's heads very cleanly about this is he gave the altitude 600 kilometres. So what is it from Melbourne to Sydney? 750, 800, I don't know. It's actually not that far away from us. Like, no. it's actually relatively close. So it's you know, zipping around the Earth pretty quickly, but it's relatively close to us. So, mm-hmm. But 600 kilometres away, if you think of taking a, a picture of you know, maybe, let's say, Canberra from on top of a building in Melbourne, wow, that's good resolution. You're looking through stuff, and as he says, it's radar. So it goes straight through the clouds, no big deal. Interesting stuff. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, Dr. Linden's got something she prepared for us. I don't know. What's it about? 
Oh, you just have to wait and see. Oh dear. <laughs> All right. It's not a, we're not watching a reality TV show here. <laughs> anyway, although that being said, surrounded by all these Tigers fans in the studio, it kind of feels that way. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. What are you going to talk about, Dr Linden? Well, given that I had a three-day weekend, I had a bit more time this week to have a look into some stuff. And also, it's the first time that I've been in Australia for the grand final public holiday. Oh, really? Uh, it's only, only came in a couple of years ago, yeah. didn't it? It's only the, the second, second one. It's only the second one. And I was, so you've missed all of them except for this one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. 50%. That's oh, actually it, a pretty good ratio. It was, it was a great public holiday for those of us who wanted to go to the G and uh, stand around and wave to our football heroes in our black and gold and, yeah. Moving on. <laughs> I might look into some, some bit of bit of public holiday science. Uh, I did a bit of research. We get thirteen public holidays in Melbourne, which is about average. Uh, Cambodia gets twenty seven. Wow, twenty seven, including International Women's Day. They get International Women's Day as a holiday. Yeah, that's pretty sweet, isn't it? Geez, I wonder what the guys would suffer on that day. Oh, It'd be they'd... slaves. <laughs> we'd, no. have to, we'd have to work hard. To... I think everyone just no. celebrates women. Doesn't no, matter if you are one or not. We'd cop it that day. <laughs> I, I, yeah. We'd cop it. I'd cop it, for sure. Okay, well, it's lucky that you don't live in Cambodia then. India, they get... For 27 between, days, I'd move to Cambodia for yeah, the extra true. 10. India get 15 to 20. People in India get between 15 to 20 days off, depending on their religion. You can kind of choose depending on which religion you do have. Do you have to change religions during the year to get old? I don't think you're allowed <laughs> to can do, you do that. Can you do that? Sure, I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's, that's not how it works. No. Hedging your bets on the holidays? <laughs> that's a very scientific response to people religious do, holidays. There are a lot of people in this country who, who, shall we say, take more than one religious holiday, different denominations, I think. Yeah, several Christmases. Several Christmases? No, I'm just oh, kidding. That sounds pretty good. Anyway, <laughs> I well, do. I'm the moral of the story, <laughs> the moral of the story is that Australia kind of sits in the middle. There are some people get a lot more holidays, some people get hmm. a lot fewer holidays. And I tried to find other holidays that were for something as important as four quarters of sport. Right. Uh, and I couldn't find anywhere else that had a, a sport-based holiday. I'm sure they exist, but I couldn't find one in my little bit of research. But well, now we've got two because obviously well, yeah, we, we have get, the other one for, for the horse race. Yeah. So, yeah. And in, ta- in we do. Oh, yeah. the horse well, race. Depends where you work. <laughs> yeah. Hobart has regatta day. Tassie gets regatta day. And um, Canberra and Darwin, I think they get picnic day. Pretty sweet. <laughs> in Bermuda, <laughs> they have a holiday in May. It's Bermuda day. day. It's the first day of the year where Bermudans swim and the first day of the year that you're allowed to wear shorts to work, Bermuda shorts. That's Is that right? Yeah, they, That's legislated? Yeah, it's That's a brilliant. public holiday. Um, shorts day. The 6th of November is Obama Day in Kenya. They have a holiday for Barack Obama. Oh, wow. Which is pretty cool. Uh, Turkmenistan has Melon Day on August the 12th, so they get a holiday. It's their national day. They celebrate melons. Okay. When I, see, when I lived in the UK, I never understood because they were bank holidays, and I'd say, yeah, but what are they for? Like, are they the Queen's birthday yeah, weekend yeah, yeah. or yeah. anything? They don't. They're just, just the bank ho- They're just because mm. it's a holiday. I think yeah. most of them are. For religious reasons. I mean, when I, we were living in Spain for a couple of years and they had a few holidays, they were all, you could trace them all back to religious things or there's a few independence days around the place. Um, but some of them, I know a few countries like Japan or Qatar, Malaysia and India, they have a national sports day, not footy mm. day. It's mm. just generic just sport, sport across the board. It's a day you have off to try to be a bit healthier, which is sort of the same, but it's not good, quite as niche. Good for health, i got to say, I, I used to do the scheduling for the second year physics laboratory. And every time a new holiday popped up, 
and there were, you know, a few here and there, it was a right royal pain in the butt because mm. you, it meant that that week that group of students were out of sequence. If oh, they yeah. were like, say they were doing labs on Monday and Tuesday and there mm-hmm. was a public hall on the Monday, all of a sudden that group of students, which might be 30% of the, the class group, mm. were one laboratory session behind everyone else, which yeah. meant they did them close. So as much as it's nice and convenient, you know, for a lot of industries and a lot of areas, you know, Absolutely. these holidays are a real yeah. world pain in the butt. I remember having to do makeup racks at university because mm. of public holidays. Mm. Yeah, now you well, mention it. Yeah. Meteorologically, public holidays are a real pain in the ass as well, actually. So if you think about... When the, you say ass, are you referring to the... Uh, the Australian the, Research Space Exploration yeah, yeah, okay. Agency, just, obviously. Just checking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you think about the natural world, there's nothing really that works on a, a weekly cycle, right? right? There's nothing natural. About a seven-day week. But about yeah. a seven-day week, isn't it? Right? So any... Except for us. It's pretty, except for us. It's pretty artificial, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anything that you see that has a weekly cycle is us, us. essentially, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, it's us. Um, but meteorologically, research has been done to show that it's drier on the weekends and it's actually a little bit cooler as well. Is it us? So one of those things is you could explain by dynamics and the other one you can explain by... Lunar cycles? Data problems. So oh, really? There's this published this, oh. this paper that was done, this quite um, famous paper that was done in Australia about 15 years ago, and it was called It Never Rains on Sundays because historically rainfall observations were taken at post offices all around the country. Some of them still are. Most of them are automatic now, but back in the day they were taken by postal observers. And Australia Post. They don't work on the weekends yep. and they don't work on public holidays. True. So there so was they don't record the data. They don't record the data. So it was significantly drier on weekends and on public holidays and significantly wetter on the Mondays or the Tuesdays. What about on Christmas Day? Because or, or right Christmas before Day. That, yep. because, and right before that, they do two deliveries. You know, they do two in the one day. Was it oh, wetter yeah. on those days? No, these are people staying at the post office. <laughs> so what this paper found was that you could see this bias all over the place. Wow. And you could also see it in another way. It was significantly drier on the weekends, but when it was really wet, it was like when it did rain, it was really wet because the observers wouldn't come in unless some really interesting rain had fallen and then right. they're like, oh, I better go in and see how much rain fell. Right. <laughs> you know? So it was, it's quite... It's, so so, so yeah. there's an incredible amount of sampling bias in yes. the data sets around the weekend. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't just happen in Australia. It happens all around the world. Oh, New research has found it in South America. It happens in Europe. And it can be... It doesn't really affect how you're studying the like annual amount of rain or monthly amount of rain because the totals are there. It's just accumulated over a few days, if you know what I mean. So (laughs) you have to think about that when you're looking at different metrics like a wet spell or a dry spell. So your monthly monthly numbers are okay, exactly, more or less, but your your weekly... You just have to think about how you're going to deal with those. However, having said that, and that's sort of my bag, trying to figure out how humans can affect these observations... Meteorologically, a study has found that it actually is 10% drier in Melbourne on the weekends. Because in wintertime. In wintertime. Yeah, because there's fewer cars on the road, so it's a little bit cooler. Mm -hmm. So um, there's more, uh, there's less kind of motion in the atmosphere, so there's less um, updraft, so there's there's fewer, a little less convection, so there's a little bit less rain on the weekends. Just interesting. And new research that's come out of the University of Melbourne by Nick Earle at the School of Earth Sciences, he's been looking at a temperature signal and has found that it's actually up to 0.3 to degrees cooler on the weekends in the city as opposed to during the week. Because there's less cars. Because there's fewer cars, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Particularly in the morning at 9am, 
Yeah, yeah. Like on Saturday and Sunday. Are these these significant? Like, is a 0.3 difference significant in terms of what then happens in our system? Well, it does help you quantify the impact that we are having. As I said, like, that can't be anything else. It has to be us. Nothing else has a weekly cycle. So, so have you seen, related to this, because I find this stuff fascinating, did you see that lightning work that was done recently? And it was either the Pacific or the Atlantic, a big ocean, let's say, I'm not sure which one, um, where they they were showing the number of lightning strikes that occurred, and it was satellite mapping of where mm-hmm. these lightning strikes occurred. Mm-hmm. And if you actually map them out, they sort of, they, they're almost like filaments, right? Mm. You could see them across, sort of filaments running across the ocean. If you then overlaid those filaments with a map of shipping lanes, <gasps> boom, boom, no. right on top. No way. And attracting it was because, lightning. Well, well, it wasn't, I'm not sure if the ships are attracting lightning, but, but there was a change in the pollution levels because... Oh. You know, once these shipping large ships get away from the coast, they start using dirtier fuels and they put more crap into the atmosphere and that enables, you know, lightning strikes, right? And so there were these great maps where you actually could look at where all the lightning strikes were occurring and they literally zipped across the... The shipping lanes. That's fascinating. And no one's really bothered to look before because it yeah. was like, well, you know, lightning strikes just occur wherever, yeah, yeah. you know, no one cares. Yeah. But when you actually correlate it with um, with shipping lanes, you could see that it, see a connection because of the pollution levels yeah, coming yeah. out of and these And it's an amazing use of satellites too. Yeah. These, actually, the same researchers, once they looked at the weekly cycle of temperature, they then looked at the global weekly cycle of fire. Because, okay. I mean, there are a lot of fires yeah, that start yeah. yep. naturally, but there are a lot of fires that don't start yep. naturally all around the world. And they use satellite information about fires to count the weekly cycle of fires. And you could, these researchers could plot the um, working week and the religious distribution of people around the world because of where the fires were. In Africa, Christian countries had a minimum of fires on Saturday and Sunday, and the Muslim countries had a minimum on Thursday and Friday, or Friday and Saturday, sorry, when the um, Muslim sort of days of Depending on which observe, which days they observe their religion. Yeah, yeah. depending on which day were their rest days. So we need to, in order to minimise issues, we need to go to a 10-day working week, is that what you're saying? (laughs) No, I think maybe a zero-day working week. (laughs) (laughs) And we just don't drive anywhere. Yeah, maybe so public holidays, good for the environment. Public holidays generally good for the environment, unless you're in India. Actually, the the, re- the research found that their one rest day was when India had the most fires. Is that right? Yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Not quite it depends sure. what they're doing. Yeah, what they're doing, but yeah, public holidays you can see it in in the environmental footprint, which is yeah. really interesting. I love the fact that it is both in the measurement of the footprint. And the footprint yeah, itself. Exactly. And those two aren't correlated. No, like they're, they're separate no. issues. I started off thinking, oh, I'll get to tell you guys about all these interesting human biases in observations. And then I thought, oh, no, look. There is there's, actually, there's a, actually a difference a, as well. Yeah, a dynamic explanation for some of these things. Fantastic mm. stuff. <sighs> I don't know what to say about that. It's just distur- <laughs> I think it's a bit disturbing that we affect It's just amazing yeah, how yeah. you can see our footprint all over the yeah. place with the lightning and, yeah, 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 and yeah. this weekly cycle. It's a really interesting way to tease out what's human and yeah, what's not as yeah. well, I think. And if you want to, if you ever want to get an idea of the footprint, people, get yourself on a boat, go out into the middle of Port Phillip Bay and look back at the city. Mm. And there's like this plaque stain across the atmosphere. It's pretty disgusting to look at. And, you know, Melbourne is a relatively clean air city compared to many around the world, so it's still pretty obvious. Although maybe if you were out in the water on Friday, you wouldn't have seen it as much. Because of the wind? Because, well, no, because oh, no, one no one was there. No one was there. <laughs> No, it was was there. Yeah, although they're all there for the grand final parade, apparently, according to Dr. Crystal. 
Hooray! You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Dr Crystal, you've got something for us. Well, I've been reading a lot recently about the application of artificial intelligence to science and medicine, and it seems like it's a really, really hot, burning coal topic right now. Can, you know, can, I, can I ask for a point of clarification just before you start? Are we talking about artificial intelligence or machine learning systems? Well, that's the thing. Artificial intelligence seems to be an umbrella term, mm. and then you've kind of got, you know, machine learning or cognitive computing, and then you've got kind of neural networks, and then you've got a new term, which is deep learning. Yep. And, and, and try, yeah, that's what I did when I was at school. Not see, and trying to trying to tease apart, you know, what we're yeah. actually talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, here. Yeah. But you know, we, we're we're broadly talking about being able to train um, a machine or a computer to be able to process information in a way that, like the human brain does, which is not based on. Because if you see a picture of something um, and you say, "Doctor Shane, is this a cat?" You don't go through a process of going, "Oh, does it have whiskers? Does it have a you know? Does it have mm, this? Does it have that?" Mm. You, you don't go through a check list in your just head. Work it out. You just know it's a cat. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so how do you get a computer rather than telling it to look for particular characteristics to actually have it trained so that it it does it straight away. It does it straight away. It says that's a cat without having to go through a, a tick box kind of Cause, system. Because I mean, this is really interesting because there was all uh, there's been a lot of talk over the years about what computers can and cannot do. And if you think, you know, there are computers that can beat grand chess masters, mm-hmm. but those computers can't play tic tac toe. No, and that's an interesting distinction between what you're talking about. And those amazing computers that can play chess. Yeah. So you can be trained to do a, a set of tasks, mm. um, um, but then can you apply that knowledge more broadly, mm. or you know, or is that knowledge transferable and relevant? And and it's really interesting right now looking at how the majority of the tech companies, so talking about IBM, Apple, Google, and Microsoft, have all got significant plays right now around health. And so a lot of their business models are starting to move into this healthcare space, and they're coming along with big promises. You know, mm. you know coming out and saying, you know, we will apply deep learning and cure cancer. You know, it's it's a big promise. And a lot of these companies have traditionally been driven by marketing and market share. And, you know, they come out and they say, you know, the new iPhone will change the way you do business. It'll change the way you interact with your friends. It'll change the way you um, experience healthcare. And, and and so I kind of think, well, are we actually delivering on this promise? You know, and, and what's actually, you know, what's mm. happening? Because mm. the concept of AI isn't new. I mean, I remember back when I was an honours student and I was looking at drug discovery, we used neural networks to be able to sort of um, train a computer to be able to recognise which molecules might be good drugs and then for it to predict, you know, outside that. And it's kind of one of the mechanisms that you use. You kind of, you give the computer a training set of whatever information that you might have. So you might show the computer, here's all of the medical uh, images we have for breast cancer CTs, you know, and the, and you give them to the computer and you say, based on all this information, you know, and this is the training set, can you then come up with a set of algorithms and a, and, and, and a way of thinking so when you see something that's outside that training set, you can say yes or no to a to a, to a, a diagnosis of, of kind of, um, of cancer. And, and we are seeing this kind of application of um, machine learning in other ways that's very successful. For example, Google's um, voice recognition software, mm. you know, that runs off a a um a, a kind of a, a machine learning um, algorithm, and Facebook's um you know when you tag people in photos and facial recognition, mm. so so there are some good examples of speech and um, image recognition that's been used commercially and, and in everyday life around other applications. Can it be applied to health? Um, you know, and I think the the things that have held this back in the past for applications into medicine have been: is there enough data available? 
And I guess this comes back to what Lyndon was saying earlier about, well, you know, you get different data on the weekends, um, you know, for rainfall. <laughs> I mean, you know, do we have the data sets mm. available and are they, and, and can we count on them? And, and, and just on that, I mean, data in medical space is dirty. It's unclean. It's it's awful. Like it's. What do you, you know, mean by that? No, the so, quality of the data. So the quality. So if you go around and and you um, have the same sort of discussion, same sort of diagnosis tests, and so forth, at say ten different GP clinics, and not to single out GPs, but just as an example of a standardised scenario, and then they record their notes in oh, their system, yep. and then Doctor Crystal goes and pulls all that data, their notes in. I mean, they won't be standardised like temperature measurements, mm-hmm. like the Bureau. Um, they'll be, you know, even sort of unclean data in the yeah, sense. Yeah, so we, to we talk about it as being structured and unstructured. Mm-hmm. And so structured data is where you know you're going to have someone's weight and height in centimetres and kilograms, mm-hmm. whereas unstructured data might be that they're, they are overweight, yeah, and yeah. overweight is, is, is a very sort of, um, unstructured way and subjective. Mm. Um, and so that's where, um, you know, so you, so we, so that's where there's been some, um, progress around things like a medical image because it's an image and you can sort of say yes or no. Um, you know, there's been some great applications to things like diagnosing cataracts, um, based on optical imaging or being able to diagnose melanomas based on skin cancer lesions. Mm. So, so things where there's actually quite distinctive images that can be, tra- a computer can be trained on we've seen quite a good amount of success but then when you've got you know then when you move into that realm of unstructured data into actually how you you know look at medical literature and pull it all together that's something that um ibm watson is looking at doing and how how and the the way ibm watson has been set up um you know is is because is it can understand language not just information so it can understand the context um of um so it it could read it can it can read uh medical literature for example and be able to pull information um that's unstructured into into, 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 a, into a decision and analysis tool. And so that's where um, IBM came out with, with um, a new application of IBM Watson into cancer research, um, you know, and basically said, we can go out and analyse all the medical literature and all the information that exists in the world to inform cancer patient diagnosis. Um, because, you know, no one person can possibly read all the journal articles, but IBM Watson can, mm. and IBM Watson can read all the data and come out and can give you, um, you know, a, a patient-specific kind of um uh, advice, yeah, care pathway, care, care pathway. Yeah. Um, and a quite quite a high profile um, partnership was announced in 2013 with um, the University of Texas's uh, Cancer Medical Center, um, MD Anderson, and they said we're going to roll out IBM Watson in our cancer care facility, um, and that was in 2013. And then earlier this year, it was announced that MD Anderson had cancelled that contract. Mm. And it was very yeah, controversial. Big deal. Uh, it was mm. a very big deal. They stopped the project and they said, you know, there's not a lot of information publicly available about why. And there were some questions about whether or not there was compatibility between IBM Watson and their own electronic um, medical record IT system. So whether it was an integration problem or whether it just wasn't delivering on, um, on the outcomes that they were expecting. And I think this kind of speaks to the way in which a lot of the artificial uh, intelligence, the deep learning um, kind of cognitive computing approaches are still really in proof of concept. Mm-hmm. They haven't really proved themselves in real life healthcare scenarios. And I think that's what we saw in the application of IBM Watson um, into this cancer area. The other thing was, and again, it comes back to the fact that IBM Watson Health may have read all of the world's cancer literature, 
But there might actually not be enough information about to certain types of cancer yeah, to yeah. solve the problem. Yeah. We're still doing research. Mm. Yeah, we're still doing basic research into some of the fundamental molecular causes of a lot of different cancer etiologies. Mm. And, and the hard thing, the hard thing about that is that the the assumption that Watson will come out with a cure is an assumption that the cure can be just simply based on the data. And you take out that intuitive response yeah. to the, a lifelong learner, an individual who's seen many things, mm. who's seen, a, you know, would, would bring to the table. And so, although, yes, it might be that there is enough data right now to isolate the molecule that does the job for you. And if that's the case, you want Watson for that because a human being can't do that kind of data sifting. But if there's some kind of leap of, of thought that is required, as is often the case with many, many medical breakthroughs, then Watson won't, in its current form, will not give you that. And I wonder too, I mean, how much of a pushback has there been from the, you know, the medical experts? Mm. If they're thinking, well, I haven't read all the cancer literature, but I've read a lot of it. And we know that more research needs to be done. And now you're wheeling in IBM Watson. I mean, was there much of I think, a issue I think, there? again, you have to really see this as another tool in the toolkit. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that, you yeah. know, a lot of... Um, uh, so if there's a, a difficult to treat um, cancer uh, case, there'll often be something called a tumour board where all the experts will come around the tumour board and discuss what the what the options are. You kind of think as IBM Watson having a seat at that tumour board. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're one voice around a table, mm. um, you know, contributing to the pool of knowledge. Yeah. But you're right, there is that unknown factor. For example... Take yesterday's football match. If you just looked at the data, <laughs> if you just, if you just looked at, you know, the Adelaide Crows and their performance during the year and their team statistics, their win-lose record, and match that up against Richmond, you might have predicted the outcome based on the data available. <laughs> However, there's that unknown factor, that no, you know, that that element that comes through that can influence a decision, that human factor mm. that maybe hasn't been factored into when you just consider the data. That, that deep annoyance. Yeah, um, <laughs> well, because there is that great example that we, we did do on the show uh, well, six months ago now probably about the melanoma study that was done where a machine learning system was trained on the images and it had a better success rate just by a percentage or so um, over the clinicians who were looking at the same set of um, images in terms of determining whether or not they were, they were you know, problem um, lesions on people's skin. Yeah. Now, there was a lot of pushback, oh, you know, but this doesn't make clinicians right. It's like, no, what it means is those very, very important clinicians in a given day can see seven people that they really need to see rather mm. than 15 people they don't need to see. And that, again, back to your toolkit analogy, it's sort of like, well, if, if you could go and look at 50 times the number of individuals just by an app on their phone and determine whether or not they need to see that that specialist, mm. then all of a sudden you start transforming the way healthcare works. And it changes the power balance. I think that's part of the pushback. It changes the power yeah. balance, but in a way that's more consumer-centric. Exactly. Um, and, and I think that, again, it's, it's finding the right applications for these technologies. Mm. So potentially um, where IBM Watson's health um, is having a great impact is actually on identifying clinical trials that patients might want to be enrolled in. So um, there's a partnership between IBM and the Mayo Clinic um, in the US where they're looking at, um, you know, the ability to match uh, patients with clinical trial applications. And, you know, what IBM Watson has read all the clinical trials, gov sites, you know, has got all the information so that when a patient walks through the door, the doctor 
doctor, you know, can just instantly know which trials this patient meets the eligibility but criteria. How for. is that? The, the doctor can give IBM Watson some information about the patient, and IBM Watson then says, "Oh, that person is perfect for trial A, B, and C." Exactly. Mm. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm. So there are some situations where you know, where again, it's how you apply the technology, and in and in and again, how you can use it as an assistive technology rather than a replacement technology. So you know, all this hype at the moment, you know, will will artificial intelligence replace doctors? You know, the answer is clearly no. It's just going to change the way that we do medicine. And I I remind people that you really want the pilot taking off and landing, but you do not want them steering the plane for 15 hours straight on the way to LA because that's where human error is really going to screw you. But you want them effective when you take off and land. Mm. So I would say that at the moment we're at the peak of hype around the application Mm. of um, AI into medicine, and I think there will be a trough of uh, disillusionment. (laughs) Um, But in the long term, we will will come through that and and start to see uh, more intelligent um, decision-making capabilities in our medical system. Sounds very good. Mm. We'll wait for those. They need to hurry up. (laughs) We're <laughs> not getting any younger. Folks, if you wonder what tracks uh, we played today, the first one was um, Drawn from Bees with um, Of Walls and Teeth. Then we had Emma Bryce with Infinity and Eternity. And the last one was The Paper Scissors with Disco Connect. Dr. Crystal, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Uh, and I'm sure you're going to wear that scarf around for the next month or uh, I'm next gonna 37 have, I'm going to have this on all week, I think. Go Tigers. to get a tattoo of a tiger on your back? <laughs> oh, not quite. <laughs> get a Dustin Martin yeah. haircut? Oh, <laughs> oh, dear. That would be a statement. <laughs> Dr. Lynn, thanks so much for coming Great in. to see you, Dr. And Shane. we're doing a special weather-themed show in a couple of weeks' time. Yes, we are. We're <gasps> getting Andrea in from mm-hmm. the bomb mm-hmm. and uh, and one of our old uh, yes. buddies, Dr. Ailey, who's on maternity leave, will be coming back to say hi and, mm-hmm. and do the show with us so that will be fun Liv's been doing a Twitter feed happily over there in the corner I'm Dr Shane until next time have a great Sunday and we'll chat to you with some more science next week this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au 